0: Greetings everyone. This is the housekeeping section. As you know, this podcast is an existing member of the Agora Podcast Network. Please note, this episode was edited by me and not by Andrew, which should be obvious fairly shortly. We also have a new patron uh, this month, and as such, uh, I will be assigning him a new uh, band name. Our new patron this month will be known in all the annals of NME and other related publications as Robert Georgia, lead singer to the Tacos of Pensiveness. Thank you very much to Robert Georgia. Hello and welcome to Why Though? A personal journey through my record collection. This is the show that asks that most important of all questions, why is this record in my collection, and is it any good? My name is Benjamin Jacobs, the confused owner of the records and host of the show. This is episode 13, Action Figure Party. The astute amongst you will note that the title of this episode is different from what I said it was going to be at the end of my last episode. Well, I'm going through a bit of a rough patch right now, so Oedipus Rex is going to have to wait. To be a bit more clear, after a summer packed with inadequate childcare that we barely endured, my house flooded, meaning that Di and I are now living in a one-bedroom, one-bed hotel apartment with our very high-maintenance, seven-year-old autistic daughter as our roommate, all while fighting with the insurance company and trying to manage a reconstruction project. Oh, and working a full-time job. I had made a deal with myself when I started Wyvo that this would not take any of my bandwidth from Wittenberg to Westphalia. The episodes of Wyvo are so much more easy to produce that I worried that I would just gradually fade off of Wittenberg to Westphalia and put all my energy into Wyvo. So I decided to only let myself do a Wyvo after I finished a Wittenberg to Westphalia. But under the circumstances, I think I'm going to cut myself a little slack. I really need the creative outlet, and my research for Wittenberg to Westphalia is sort of back on track. So. If I can find the time to record these, I will. It will at least make me feel better. A little bit. I hope. Now, at one point, it wasn't clear that I would even be able to record at all. When all this started, I was literally in the same room as my daughter when she was sleeping. And as that is the only time I have to work on the show, it seemed like I would just not be able to record. Happily, well, right now she's just being quiet, so we're going to go with that. But they also did give us a room with a door, so that's something. Anyway, this all does not make the production of Why Though completely without difficulty. You will note that Why Though tends to focus on records, and while I could conceivably move my stereo here from the house, I really don't trust the child around my records. Which is where we come back to one of the founding ideas of this show, actually. If you recall back to the first episode, I had said that this show was itself the spiritual successor to a blog that I had back in 2012 called The Care and Feeding of a Record Collection. Ah, you can find it, it's still there, but it's a little hard to Google. However, that blog took the idea of a record collection a little little bit more symbolically, as I was mostly really reviewing my CDs. At the time, I didn't have any furniture that I could stably run my record player on, so CDs it was. In any case, part of the idea for this show was that if I ever ran into a situation where I was in some kind of a crunch and needed an episode, I could dust off the old blog entries and use them as filler. And that's kind of where we are today. However, I should say that the blog and the show have a somewhat different format, and since the point of this isn't to just crank out new episodes, but rather to scratch my creative itch without a record player, I'm going to be reformatting the old entries somewhat to fit this show. Once my house is basically somewhat fixed, I will go back to releasing episodes about actual records. But for now, I'm going to put out one of these CD-focused episodes approximately whenever I need to for my mental health. I don't know if anyone else cares about that, but I do, so that's what I'm going to do. Now then, on to the show. All right, everybody, let's talk about jazz. Hey, no, wait, come back. It's it's not really jazz, It's it's jazz rock fusion. Okay, okay, I get it, I do. The modern music world's relationship with jazz is complicated. And emotional, and not necessarily in positive ways. And we need to deal with that. So please, just put down the pitchforks and explosive-filled vests, grab a glass of Merlot and listen. I meant a beer. Grab a beer. Uh, uh, A mass-produced one. Or whatever. Okay. Lordy. So, we can't talk about jazz without acknowledging its roots. Along the Mississippi River, musical elements of West African, indigenous, Celtic, Spanish, French, and English musical traditions blended in the enslaved and later sharecropping underclass populations of those regions to create something uniquely American. More than that, uniquely African-American. Starting at the turn of the 20th century, as the rate Migration became a major cultural force, bringing black folks out of the cripplingly racist South and up into the comparatively less terrifying but still cloyingly bigoted North, the traditional musical elements of black culture blended in the African-American enclaves of the rising industrial cities. Gospel, soul, blues, call-and-response, choral music, and yes, early forms of jazz all came together, with the key epicenters being in Chicago and New York City. Within these cities, white people gradually became aware of this new music, but initially it was dismissed as quote-unquote race music. An early form of the music coalesced into ragtime, which fused many of these traditional African-American forms with the increasingly popular music hall genre of sheet music, which then spread around the country somewhat via vaudeville acts, with all the good and bad that that implies, and early records, and like I said, the mass sales of sheet music. As mainstream, read, white audiences started to accept ragtime, some of the more adventurous began looking for what other exciting music might be hiding in the quote-unquote race music genres. At the same time, African-American culture was enjoying a new prosperity in the urban centers of the U.S., something which created a network of venues and record labels that catered to this rising black middle class and their desire for entertainment. Long story short, and skipping over a few really bloody and tragic events in US history in the 1920s, mainstream read white audiences gradually came to hear and appreciate this new musical form called jazz. At first, this recognition came informally amongst white musicians who could recognize a good thing when they heard it. Um, they interacted with black colleagues out on the vaudeville circuit and in, in other places around and, you know, heard what they were playing off stage, liked it and started to play it together with them uh, in many cases. Some of them uh, then brought that music to uh, wider and wider white audiences, first amongst other musicians and then further out. Gradually as this process moved on, the form gradually gathered radio play and record sales and grew in popularity until ultimately in the pre-World War II and then the post-war period, Uh, Different kinds of jazz became the dominant musical style for pop music in the United States. After the 50s, the rise of many other genres gradually pushed jazz off the pop charts, even as jazz became more intellectual and experimental. For more, check out the Ken Burns documentary about jazz, or basically any documentary about jazz. That's the story that they like to tell. This episode, however, is not about that kind of jazz because this familiar narrative does not explain the emotional reaction in musical circles to the idea of jazz today that we started this episode with. One might suggest that there is an element of racism, and while that's always a good go-to in US society, and while I'm often willing to accept those lines of reasoning for many things, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it's almost certainly not the primary issue here. At least not this one time. Race has something to do with the story, of course, the wider story, but the fact is that jazz isn't what it used to be. Back in the old days of jazz, it was produced by and for the black community. But as it gained cultural acceptance, white musicians started producing jazz. Indeed, a big part of the eventual acceptance of jazz into the mainstream was the existence of all white jazz acts that were less scary to mainstream read white audiences. These artists also produced versions of jazz that were tailored to the tastes of those audiences by blending it with music they already listened to. This is a story not unique to jazz. There is a push and pull for any musical genre that arises in a subculture. On the one hand, musicians produce music to be heard, and gatekeeping on who is allowed to produce a kind of music is usually unhelpful and regressive. On the other hand, jazz is not the only musical form to essentially be stolen from its creators. The pioneers of jazz largely died in poverty without mainstream recognition, while the white musicians who so enthusiastically championed the style, whatever their motives, often ended up with comfortable careers and popular acceptance for their vision. Some of these white musicians and producers were engaged in outright theft. I might suggest a majority were just enthusiastic about a shared love for the musical form, and maybe their heart was in the right place, but honestly the outcome is the same. Those who did most to create the music were not rewarded, and much of what was called jazz changed to meet the tastes and preferences of mainstream read-white audiences. I have no answer to what the right thing to do is about this problem, I'm just saying that it is, in the same way that Duncan, my cat, is sitting with his butt in my face, and in the same way that my house is not habitable. This is just reality, whether we like it or not. Now I'm not saying that no black people make jazz today, that would be absolutely ridiculous. Black musicians remain important in the genre, and in many ways the genre is a black genre, whatever that means. But black culture as a whole, I think it's fair to say, has moved on from jazz to other genres that spoke more to the lived black experience of their time and place, ultimately culminating most recently in rap and hip-hop, though we should of course give mention to Motown, blues, R&B, soul, funk, and probably others that this white boy has not explored enough to give proper credit to. The point is, however, that jazz has been left in an interesting position. In the year of our Lord, 2022, jazz is no longer really relevant to the black community as a whole, nor is it getting any kind of chart success in the mainstream. And yet the musical community continues to think about jazz to the point of having very strong emotional reactions, both for and against. Why? How? The following is my poorly researched addendum to the traditional story arc of jazz. During that post-war period, where jazz was declining in popularity but increasing in complexity, a certain substrata of the population retained interest in this kind of jazz. Many were old jazz fans who just followed the genre where it went, but there was an increasingly large group of young intellectuals who had a particular interest in jazz, often college kids who liked it specifically because it was unique and weird and not popular. I sympathize. These were the first hipsters. Quite literally, this is where that word comes from. And as this demographic aged, many of the aging hipsters have retained their commitment at some level to jazz. As well-educated individuals, these folks are more likely than your average person to have done well financially or to have gotten socially important positions in education or the government. In other words, they had socio-economic power that went beyond their numbers. Some of that power was used to shape and repeat narratives, such as the one presented in Ken Burns' documentary about jazz, And some of it was used to put jazz into the educational system, such that students with a talent for music are often taught jazz, and how to play jazz, and how to listen to jazz, and things like that. So I'm not saying that everyone who likes jazz is a boomer. People from other age groups do listen to jazz. Um, And I'm not saying that poor people don't listen to jazz. They do, of course. Rather, I'm suggesting that this subpopulation of, at least initially, boomers were able to put forward jazz as a product of high culture, which in turn influenced a lot of other well-educated, socioeconomically important people to also like jazz. As such, jazz gained socioeconomic power and prestige that was divorced from its raw popularity. I would suggest that younger and poorer people do listen to jazz in lesser numbers as a percentage, though of course I don't have any poll data on hand to prove it. In any case, as I've said, the point is that aging hipsters had a lot of socioeconomic power and buying power that went beyond their numbers, and this power has had a major ability to influence the kinds of narratives pushed in the press and in terms of the sales of record companies. Now, the narrative pushed by these aging middle-class intellectuals shifted over time from this is quality fun music that you just don't get, man, because you're old, to, now, jazz is the greatest American music. It is genuinely high art, which is more relatable than classical music, but also somehow underappreciated by the Philistines on the street, and requires protection and saving by us intellectuals lest it die out. Essentially, jazz is something important that you should be listening to, because it's so sophisticated. To the credit of the jazz guys, their push to keep jazz relevant has not relied on massive government subsidies of musical institutions, the way classical music does. Rather, the raw economic power of rich baby boomers and their acolytes has kept the market afloat, at least for most of recent history. In the 90s, when I came of age musically, record stores tended to have a few musical sections. You might have pop and rock separated, you might not, hip hop and rap were a section, Classical music was a selection, world music was a section, probably, and then there was jazz. And so even if no one you knew talked about listening to jazz, there it was, a huge section of the store. Someone was buying it. As the urban decay of the post-war period waned, the economic impact of jazz guys could be seen in the landscape. Inner city areas began to gentrify, driving up rents and insurance premiums. Live music venues that had fostered young talent by letting them play for the regulars saw their profit margins slip. Many just closed. But liquor licenses being at something of a premium, most tried to go upscale, creating a more rarefied environment to allow them to charge more for drinks. And so it was in the 1990s that we saw inner city areas filled with jazz clubs, despite the fact that the radio was full of grunge, hip hop, ska, and punk. On the one hand, I'm glad music venues survived in some way, and it's not like I think that turning 40 means you're not allowed to go out and have fun anymore, or that your taste in music isn't valid. As someone who will cross this threshold rather soon myself, the idea of a club where I can enjoy a nice quiet drink on a comfortable seat while enjoying live music is not unappealing. On the other hand, the specificity of the genres involved closed off the ability of more genuinely popular music to reproduce itself. Where now are the dive bars and rockers, the dollar beer, selling? Where is the all-age shows and the 18-plus and the no-drink minimum? Where are the bands battling and the poetry nights opening? Where are the billiard halls with foul bathrooms and single-stage light working? They have passed like a punk rock solo, like a bad frozen burrito. The clubs have become discos. The discos become piano bars and wine bars and jazz clubs and restaurants. Who shall teach the new bands how to work a room or give kids a place to hang out away from their parents? Uh, All of which is to say that the rise of jazz as a upper middle class musical safe space in inner city areas created a somewhat parochial dead end for music resources. High end jazz clubs do not offer a way for young musical talent to be fostered other than young jazz talent, nor has jazz as a genre really continued to interact with popular culture all that much. I would suggest that this has a lot to do with how the dialogue around jazz has become adversarial. For those watching their old dive bars close, being told by some well-off dude in a three-piece suit and how superior jazz is from a bar that does not serve anything anyone with a real job can afford is not a great way to sell a genre. More broadly, for millennials and Gen Xers, jazz was something our parents liked, which was never on the radio, so it is bewildering and uncool. Which created a somewhat inevitable demographic implosion in the last 10 years, it must be said. Uh, and this, is, this part is written since I did that original blog post. Now, I'm not going to say that jazz is dead, um, people have said that too many times. But as boomers have started to be less culturally dominant, especially in inner city areas, things have changed. A lot of places that were once jazz lounges or the like are now less specific about what kind of live music they have on offer. Now I don't know what they're playing, because I'm too poor and tired to go out, and every place is probably different, but anecdotally it looks like many of the clubs in Providence have shifted to catering to the indie bluegrass music so beloved of lame-aging millennials with names like Chris, Michael, Amanda, or Ben. Uh, Which is to say that indie is probably a cultural dead end we will need to discuss as well, but that's for another day. None of this addresses the key point. What do I think about jazz? Like, aesthetically, this is my show, and I've been writing this fairly dispassionately. Apart from the fans, is jazz good, in my opinion? Well, the thing is, which jazz? Like punk, there are so many sub-genres of jazz that it's almost silly to talk about it as one thing. And anyway, I'm not the kind of person who will sit and say that all of it, a genre is bad. Like, country music isn't bad because Johnny Cash exists and John Prine exists and many others. You can't just say that something is bad because all musical genres provide a general aesthetic experience that it's fans like, and which allows the creative people who live within it to express a range of emotional, philosophical, or aesthetic ideas. That doesn't mean that you have to like Florida Georgia line, heaven forbid, but if you can get past your own baggage, any genre can be basically enjoyable and deepen your appreciation for life and the world. I mean, maybe not reggaeton or jam bands, uh, but all the other genres. So sure, I like jazz well enough. It's not really my thing in the sense that I didn't really grow up steeped in it. I watched a lot of Cowboy Bebop, and that soundtrack is killer. And I have a handful of things I picked up cheap, and I might get to reviewing them someday. I tend to prefer things with energy, so I'm not a fan of the late Miles Davis-type cool jazz stuff. Not at all. I tend to prefer bebop, big band era stuff, and of course, Nolans. So with my cards sort of on the table, how do I feel about today's album, which is presumably jazz in some way, given this introduction? Today's album is the self-titled and only album produced by Action Figure Party. Action Figure Party is a massive all-store assembly of talent, but the main character in our story is a guy named Greg Kirsten. Kirsten is a trained jazz pianist. Gen X, for what that's worth, who for many years was half of the creative talent behind a band called Gegita. Gegita is a kind of a one hit wonder, as their song, Whoever You Are, made it to number 16 on the modern rock charts in 1996. But you can be forgiven if you've never heard of them. The best way for me to summarize Gegita is that they were on David Byrne's label, Luca Bop. and they're a jam band. So, as you might expect with any act associated with David Byrne, their sound is consciously weird in a wonderful way, but ultimately listenable and friendly in a sort of detached stoner kind of way. So they're like, they're like a jam band version of the Talking Heads. Sigh. By 2000, Gegita was in the midst of releasing a third album, but it got tangled up in a label merger issue and had already been delayed for years at that point. Um, They'd been together for almost a full decade, and it seems like the two main members of the band had just kind of decided to go their separate ways. Kirsten already had a successful career as a producer, and fighting through the bureaucracy probably seemed like more trouble than it was worth. So he left the band and put together a new one-off project, Action Figure Party, uh, bringing in all his friends from the music industry to do session work, help with writing, vocals, whatever. Basically, it was a giant jam session that he recorded and produced like a dub act. And I guess it was kind of a musical palate cleanser before he moved on to real solo work. Now, a key thing to understand is that Kirsten is extremely well-connected in a very specific circle. So by his friends from the music industry, I mean the following list. Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers. Jose Peselius from Incubus. Mio Hittori from Chibomato. Gabriel McNair from No, Bout, no Doubt, David Raylich from Beck, Yogi from Buck Cherry, Daniel Schulman from Garbage, Mike Elizondo, uh, who worked with Fiona Apple, Yuval Gabby from Soul Coughing, Gary Novick from Chick Corea and also worked with Alanis Morissette, Brian Retzel from Air and Red Cross, John Molo, Bruce Hornsby and Mickey Hart, and Sean Lennon. If you were looking for a list of somewhat pretentious high art pop music artists from LA in the late 1990s, early Oddies, that would be a pretty comprehensive list. Pro- attention aside, there's a lot of talent there, so, you know, you can see what he was going for. This is largely why I bought the album. In fact, I was kind of going through a hero worship phase in my attempts to learn the bass at the time, and when I saw that Flea is in the list while perusing the tracks at Princeton Record Exchange, That basically sold me on the two bucks I would need to spend on it. For what it's worth, his track is pretty badass. Or at least the bass part is. The rest of it kind of struggles to keep up. Oh well, you'll find a good band one day, Flea, I'm sure of it. Incidentally, Flea started off playing trumpet, and I know that he did so in at least one of his side projects, and there are recordings of this. I really want to find that, but it isn't this one. Uh, I was kind of disappointed in that. Moving on. So, Kirsten got all these people together, wrote a bunch of music with them, and made an album. What does it sound like? Well, it's a rock, jazz, and dub fusion album. Now, rock and jazz fusion is an especially… kind of lame entry into the jazz landscape. There's some good stuff, don't get me wrong, again, I won't condemn any genre, but the blends have over the years been occasionally brilliant, but more often have been too simple to be good jazz and too slow to be good rock, all while being so, so pretentious. And when it isn't pretentious, it's a jam band, which is a fate worse than death action figure party, like Gegita, is definitely pretentious, albeit in a fun Beck kind of way that I find easy to forgive. More dangerously, they also both walk along the edge of the gaping maw that is the jam band precipice. I will definitely be talking about jam bands in a future episode. For now, let me just move swiftly on and say that it is the dub aspect of this album that makes this album listenable, nay, highly enjoyable. Sean Lennon manned the turntables on this album, and I have to say, he, I think he did an amazing job, and he's just generally very talented. So me saying so on my stupid uh, podcast is probably not telling him anything he doesn't know. When combined with the work of Kirsten as producer, the final effect is as if they took the recordings from the studio and handed off to a member of the Avalanches for the final cut. The music itself is, is cool jazz. But it's done in a good way, where it isn't intended as easy listening music, but as a whimsical musical collage. The tempo is fast, which helps keep me awake, and basically every track finds a groove quickly and effectively explores that groove during its runtime. The album is mostly instrumental, which means, in a sense, it is all one big solo. The one thing that most unifies everything I hate about prog rock, jazz, and jam bands is the solo, which takes a perfectly good song and right in the middle brings the pace to a screeching halt so that the musicians can sonically manipulate themselves on stage as everyone heads for the bar. But making the entire thing instrumental dub puts this in a different category, more along the lines of EDM, where the point is the aesthetic exploration and not so much the emotional narratives created by traditional song structures. Of course, my favorite era of EDM was the big beat era, where people made house music that was structured like rock songs, so I am just full of contradictions, I guess. I do like craftwork and all I like EDM, but that's my favorite. To get back to the point of all this, Action Figure Party is a fun little album, despite everything. The songs aren't overly masturbatory, they seem well-structured, and listening to it was fun. If you like jazz or dub, you will definitely enjoy it. If you are not a frothing musical bigot, it will at least be pleasant lo-fi background music. The album art is a key aspect of communicating the point of this album, but it's also pretty minimalist. The conceit of an action figure party, where little kids come over and play with their toys together, is the main unifying theme of the album art, and I would suggest the album itself. In that vein, there are some funny pictures of action figures dancing on a roof, Unfortunately, due to the long list of guests, much of the booklet is taken up with listing the tracks and noting who played what when. The lyrics for the two songs So Blessed with vocals are included, which is a plus. Behind the disc tray, there's a really douchey picture of Greg Kirsten in a black turtleneck sweater with a tiny keyboard in the thank you section. It includes thanking Bud for believing in this vision, which cements the fact that I hate the word vision and anyone who uses it. Except for ophthalmologists. And urban planners. But only when they flinch and feel bad about it. At least internally. Anyway, I would recommend this album if you find it somewhere, but it's probably not worth seeking out unless you're a jazz fan, or you think you might be a jazz fan, or you happen to really like early aughts hipster musicians from LA. If you are a jazz fan, I would say this is a pretty exciting take on the genre. For the rest of us, I would note that much modern jazz has the emotional depth of a damp cloth, and this isn't really any different. But if you're just looking for a fun aesthetic experience, this is definitely that. I really enjoyed my first listen, nigh on these 10 years ago, and while my second pass has been more critical, revisiting it for this episode has been fun. The music is really happy and left me in a good mood, which is more than I can say for the blind rage that jam bands leave me with. Anyway, tune in next time as I review a jam band. So that's the episode. I think the original blog entry was like a page, and this is seven pages, so I would say that this version is a bit more intense. As usual, links in the show notes to any referenced music. I'm hoping that by the time this is out, we will be well on our way to having the house rebuilt, but I think I do want to do at least one more of these throwback episodes, given that hilarious sign-off from the original blog. So, next time I will be listening to Alan and the Alligators, again, link in the show notes. Until then, be well. I hope that you all find the answers you seek in your record collection. Might suggest that there is an element of racism, and while I'm often willing to accept that line of reason, term, for fuck's sake, Duncan, it's buried.